0: Adrian was a young military officer, but already he had distinguished himself to his superiors and had won promotion after promotion. He was newly married, and he had every hope of becoming a high-ranking official in the empire. Not only that, but of becoming perhaps wealthy and becoming well-known in his town of Nicomedia, which is now in the northwest part of Turkey. He was strong And courageous. But one thing bothered him. One thing bothered him in his job. That was his job of torturing Christians. You see, Adrian lived during the 4th century AD under the emperors Diocletian and Maximian. And during this time, they had commenced the 10th and actually the last persecution under the pagan Roman Empire. Group after group of Christians was accused tried, and then brutally murdered because of their faith. It bothered Adrian when he saw these Christians coming in peaceful in the face of torture, persecution, and death. They seemed unrelentingly committed to their Lord. One time, a group of 23 Christians was captured in a cave. They were hauled in before the judge to be sentenced, and there Adrian, as one of the guards, as one of the officers there, asked one of the Christians, What is it that gives you so much strength in the midst of your persecutions? What reward do you expect from your God, for your loyalty, for all of these sufferings? The reply came quickly. The man said, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we believe, he is the one who gives us strength. He has promised us such rewards as we are not able to describe, nor can come into mind. Hadrian was taken aback. He turned to the scribe, and without hesitation he says, Write my name down. Write my name down with these Christians to be persecuted, for I have also become a Christian. I will gladly die for Jesus Christ. When the emperor got word that his faithful officer, Adrian, had become a Christian, he was shocked. He tried to persuade him to give up his faith. You've lost your mind, Adrian. Do you want to die? I have not lost my mind, he replied, but rather I have found it. I've made up my mind to serve Jesus Christ. Adrian would not be dissuaded. Now, unbeknownst to him, Adrian's wife at this time had secretly become a Christian, and when she heard that her husband was in prison, she rejoiced. Through all the trials, through all the torture, Adrian was faithful to the end. As the story has it, his wife was present when he and the other Christians were cruelly executed for their faith. And not long after that, Natalia, his wife, also died from her grief and suffering. What is it, I ask you, that makes Christians like this willing to suffer and die for their faith? What is it that would change ordinary men and women into someone who would be willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice? In a word, my friends, it is simply faith. Faith. But what is faith? What is faith? What we find in Hebrews chapter 11, a definition of faith, you can all probably say it by heart. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Well, okay, that's a definition of faith. And it gives us a starting point. But I think we have to unpack this a little bit more to understand why such a thing is would be something someone would be willing to die for. I mean, in the first place, what does it mean to live by faith? As we read in our scripture reading, the just shall live by his faith. My friends, I believe that to live by faith means simply this. To live by faith is to live one's life in view of the unseen realities of God. That is, to live as, if we, as we would live if we could actually see the things that are real, but we just can't see them. It leads me to this question. Do you have a view of the unseen world? Can you see the things that other people cannot see? George Whitefield once told the story of a conversation between a preacher and an actor. The preacher asked the actor, Why is it that so many people flock to the theatres to see a made up story, while so few people are attending church to learn of God? In reply, the actor said, We actors on the stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real, while you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Well, I hope it won't be said of my preaching that I speak of real things as if they were only imaginary. But the question remains, how do we live our lives? Do we live our lives as though the things that we believe in are fairy tales? Or do we live our lives, stake our lives, our real, physical, tangible lives, on the unseen realities of the world above? Like the air that surrounds us, there is a world that we cannot see. You know, and I thought about, and I didn't bring it with me, but I thought of bringing a little radio up here. But just imagine that I have a little radio. You know that there is music playing all around us that we cannot hear right now. But if I were to turn on that radio and tune it to the right channel, I could listen to just about any kind of music that I want to, or talk shows, or news, or anything else, and it's it's going right through the air that right now as we speak, but we simply cannot hear it, because we're not tuned in to those radio waves. But with a very simple device, I could tune into those radio waves and we could hear the unseen world. Now, it's a very, very much a part of our physical world, but I'm using this as an illustration that there are many things that are real, but we cannot see them with our eyes. We cannot hear them with our ears without a little bit of help. And that really brings me to the next question. If there is an unseen world, if there are unseen beings, do we not believe and are we not told that these unseen beings perhaps have a claim upon our lives? A prior claim. And that is the title of my message today. Simply a prior claim. Is it possible that the unseen world has a claim upon our lives? That when we recognize the claim of the unseen world. That we recognize the reality of our lives and we can live our lives to the fullest extent, both now and in the eternity to come. What do I mean by a prior claim? Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and we'll explore this a little bit further. This story is told of Jesus. Mark chapter 12 and I'll begin reading in verse 14, Mark chapter 12, back one more page, and verse 14. The uh, Pharisees, as you know the story in the Gospels, the Pharisees were the chief antagonist to Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, and they were constantly trying to trap him, constantly trying to trick him into saying something that he didn't mean to get him in trouble, either with the Romans or the people, or preferably with both. And uh, they never did succeed, but this is one of those occasions where they were trying to trap Jesus. So they come to Jesus, and the question we find here in verse 14, then they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Okay, so they're buttering him up. They're flattering him. We said, we know you're impartial and all this stuff. And then they come up to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A yes or no question. Just simply answer yes or no. And we'll have you either way. Because if you say yes... Well, see, here's the thing. Jesus had already claimed to be the Messiah. So if Jesus says, yes, you need to pay your taxes to Caesar, then they're going to say, well, you can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to deliver us from the Romans, and the Messiah wouldn't be asking us to pay taxes to the Romans because he's going to deliver us from them. So they would totally discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. That's their thought. Well, if he says no, then what are they going to do? They're going to run straight to the Romans. This guy's an insurrectionist. He's telling us not to pay taxes to Caesar. Okay? So we've got him either way. Right? Either he says yes, or he says no, and either way, he's in trouble. So that's what they're thinking. So Jesus says, simply, so in verse 15, they, they ask him again, shall we pay, or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their pro- hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius. Bring me a coin, so I can look at it. So, dutifully, they pull out a coin, Jesus looks at it and he says, Whose image and inscription is this? Whose picture do you see on a coin? Well, I see a president. I see President Washington on the quarter, right? But whose picture do you see on the coin? Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God... The things that are God's. You see, in this time, the people of Israel, like it or not, were part of the Roman economy. Just like we today are part of the United States economy. If I say, bring me a quarter, you're going to bring me a quarter that looks very much like this, right? Or a dollar or a $20 bill. No matter what denomination of currency you bring me, you're probably not going to bring me a Canadian dollar you're going to bring me an american dollar and it's going to say the united states of america right on it the united states of america has as it were a prior claim on that money in fact if i were to take a dollar bill and burn it um one thing it'd be a waste of money (laughs) but for another thing i could actually get in trouble for destroying or defacing it's actually against the law to deface currency the government even though this is my quarter, if I were to smash it or bend it or break it up, I would probably get in trouble for defacing the currency because it belongs to the government before it belongs to me. And by that by that token, because we're part of the economy, I have to pay taxes on every quarter that I get. I have to pay taxes, and the Jews had to pay taxes on their money. And Jesus is using this argument and saying, the Romans have a prior claim. Caesar has a prior claim to this coin. He has a right to tax this coin because it's his before it was yours. But you know, Jesus isn't just saying this as a clever saying to get out of a trap that the Jews had laid for him. If, if, if that was the case, I don't think the gospel writers would have spent so much time to write out the story for us if he was just trying to get out of a trap. You see, Jesus is using this as an opportunity to teach us a very important lesson. Because he doesn't stop by simply saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but he continues on by saying, and to God the things that are God's. By the same token that Caesar's picture is on the coin, is there something in our lives on which God has stamped his picture, his image and superscription, as it were, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. You can probably also quote this to me by heart. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And I'll look it up here too. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. You see, when God created you and me, In the beginning, he created us in his image. He, as it were, stamped his picture on your face and on your heart. And he says to you, you are mine. Before you were anyone else's, you were mine, and I have a prior claim upon you. Yes, God does allow us the freedom to choose. He allows us to choose to whom we will give our loyalties when He places His claim upon you. He's clearly staked His claim, not just because of creation, but even more because He bought you back, because of your redemption through the blood of Christ. And we find that in First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed by the corruptible things, like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Let me ask you again. What does it mean to live by faith? As we read in our scripture reading in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the just shall live by his faith. What does it mean to live by faith? It means to live our lives in sight of the unseen world and to recognize the prior claim that God has upon our lives, upon your life, and upon mine. Before anyone else, he has staked his claim. And to live by faith is to live in recognition of the claim that he has upon my life. First of all, we must recognize by faith God's love and his goodness to us. He is not mean. He is not arbitrary. He is not demanding of unreasonable things. But as he said to Moses in Exodus 34 and verse 6, when Moses asked to see God, to see his glory, to see his character, God passes before him and he declares, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in goodness and truth. God is not a God of hatred. God is a God of love. And he stamped upon our lives that image of love. We must recognize by faith God's goodness to us. Secondly, we recognize by faith the unseen reality of Christ's redemption. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, that's faith again, should not perish, but have. Everlasting life. Let the cross of Christ, my friends, not simply be an ancient legend, a story in a history book, but let it be a living reality, a demonstration of God's character of love, like nothing the universe has seen before. Let it not be simply that God died, that Jesus died, for the sins of all the world, though that is true, but he died for your sin personally. He died to save you personally because he loves you and he loves me. Finally, to live by faith empowers us to partake of the attributes of God, to allow his image, as it were, to be stamped again into our lives. We find that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. Second Peter chapter one, verses one through four. Peter speaks of the life of faith to those who have ta- obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which, get this my friends, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. My friends, my brothers and my sisters, we can become partakers of God's nature by living by faith, by recognizing the reality of the unseen world. We can Have our characters transformed into his likeness, into his image once again. Paul admonishes us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's unpack this. What does it mean to render to God the things that are God's? Do you belong to God? Are you His possession? Does God place a claim upon your physical body? Clearly, He does. In the beginning, one of the institutions that God set up in Eden was the institution of marriage. And Paul is actually talking about this here in the context of 1 Corinthians. The first family was to be a model for every family to come. But not only that, it was to be a model of the relationship that Christ has with us as his church. Let me ask you this. What institution is it that the devil is most trying to attack and tear down and obliterate? Is it not the institution of marriage whether it's through unfaithfulness or infidelity in the church, or whether it's rampant immorality in our society, secular entertainment, filthy garbage on the internet, the devil is working overtime to tear down everything that it means to have a godly marriage. God says in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Jesus clarifies Whoever looks on a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. That goes not just for ourselves, but for those around us. Before they can become ours, even my spouse, before she is mine, she is God's. And I recognize her as a person who relates first to God and secondly to me, not the other way around. You are not your own. What about our health? What about the things that we eat? What about the things that we wear? Does God place a claim upon them? Can I eat whatever I want? Can I do whatever I want to do and say, oh, God doesn't care? No, because I'm not my own. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to God recognizing the reality of the unseen. What about the things that we have? My money, my car, my house, my fast computer. Are they mine? Or are they God's because of his prior claim upon me? And how do we recognize his claim? As Glenn was sharing in that beautiful little illustration at the, during the offering call, we return a tenth as he has asked us to do. We return the tithes and the offerings to Him, recognizing that everything we have belongs to Him. What about our words? The Ten Commandment says thou shalt not bear false witness. Jesus says every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Does God have a claim upon our words? Does God have a claim upon our time? Does he not say, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? For in six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath. In a word, to keep God's law, to keep his Ten Commandments, is to recognize his prior claim upon our lives. But of course, just simply doing all of these things isn't necessarily living by faith. I mean, I could, for a little while probably keep most of the Ten Commandments pretty well without faith. Uh, it'd break down sooner or later, but I could at least appear to be keeping them pretty well without faith. It wouldn't be very much fun. I've actually tried that before, and it doesn't work very long. We call that legalism. We call that trying to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But you see, when it starts with faith, when it starts with a recognition of God's claim on our lives, a recognition of his love for us, then all these other things that are required in the Ten Commandments then become a joy to do because they're simply the outgrowth of that love relationship between myself and God, or rather between him and me. But it goes even further than that, my friends. You see, to recognize his prior claim is not simply to keep his Ten Commandments. It starts there, yes. Jesus says, and turn with me in closing to Luke chapter 14. This is perhaps the most difficult verse in the entire Bible. At least for me it is. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 and 27. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Must we hate our families? Well, not in the sense that we think of the word hate, but that's what Jesus is saying. Whoever loves his father, mother, wife, children, more than me, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus First, before anything else. And it's easy to say until we look at what that looks like. To live by faith is to live like this. To live like Abraham who left his entire family in Ur of the Chaldees and set out into the wilderness to a land he had never seen before. A land promised by God. Following what? Something that he saw, something on paper? Or simply by faith, knowing that God had promised to make of him a great nation? Not even having an heir, and then at a hundred years old, he has a son. And after all of this, after following God all of his life, God says, take your son up on this mountain and offer him as as a sacrifice. To live by faith is to live like Moses who had it made for him in the palace of Egypt but instead he decided to follow God and become the leader of God's people to lead them out of slavery. To live like Joshua who although the other ten spies saw the giants of the land he chose by faith rather to see the goodness of the land and to see the possibilities before him. To live by faith is to live like Adrian and Natalia of Nicomedia, who feared not to say with the Christians, Put down my name! I will die a martyr's death if it means so much greater reward hereafter. All these men and women saw clearly the dangers before them, but they saw even more clearly what human eyes cannot see they saw the eternal reward they saw the reality of the unseen my prayer today is this that as we look around and see the things that we can see that our eyes will be opened and that we will be able to say with paul what things were gained to me these i have counted loss for christ yea indeed i also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Loving Father in heaven, you have shown to us so many examples in your word of men and women who have lived by faith, Help us, Lord, to have that knowledge, to have that eyesight, to be able to see the unseen, to be able to see you, and to live our lives fully trusting in you. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.